as John, as we read this evening, the short passage from chapter 1, verse 5 to verse 10. First John, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10 where we read the following words, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from every sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. This is the living and abiding word of God. Thanks be to his most holy name. Now, on these Sunday evenings, we have begun to gather a series through the first book of John in the New Testament and have begun to explore some of the rich teaching and the themes of this great portion of God's Word. We remember perhaps tonight that the purpose of John's letter, as we have seen, is to set before a very troubled church in John's day the tests of fellowship with God so that the Christians of John's time could be assured of their salvation in Christ. And one of the great themes, as you recognize from your own reading of the book, is that John emphasizes assurance of salvation. And the word frequently occurs all through the five chapters of this book that you may know. We've been reminded on these Sunday evenings that there are three great tests that we must apply to our lives as we took an overview of the book in the first of these expositions. The test of doctrine, uh, the test of life, the moral test, and the test of fellowship, the social test. And it is necessary for us as Christian men and women to examine our lives in the light of these three great tests. Do we believe aright? Do we live aright? The moral test. Do, they, do we walk in fellowship with one another in the word of God as we should the social test? And as we apply these things to our lives, we begin to discern within us whether the marks of a true relationship with God are present in our Christian experience. Now, last Sunday evening, we began to look at the great theme that was expounded in verse 5 of 1 John chapter 1. This is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him 
is no darkness at all. And we saw last Sunday evening that that great verse brought to us the message of the true nature of the gospel and the true character of God and the need for all those who profess faith in the Lord Jesus to walk in the light, that is, to walk in obedience to that God whose very essence and character is pure, unadulterated light and in whom there is no darkness at all. Now, much of the rest of chapters 1 and 2, as we're going to begin to see this evening, is indeed a commentary upon that great statement of the fifth verse, that God is light. There is a certain sense in which the whole of the rest of the book of First John is a commentary upon that amazing text of God's word. And it has profound implications for Christian living. What I want to do this evening is to begin to bring to you three of those implications for Christian living that is in that great text that we explored together last Sunday evening, that God is light. And John puts it to us in a very interesting way, as I think you will have noticed in the reading this evening, and as I reminded you uh, in a very brief way last Lord's Day. There are three false attitudes that can arise from a wrong understanding of the Christian faith, a wrong application of verse 5, that God is light. And if you look with me at the passage that we read together tonight, you notice that each one of them begins with the same phrase, if we claim, verse 6, And if you look again in verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, and finally in verse 10, if we claim that we have not sinned. And what John is doing is setting out before us with great clarity and perspicuity the way in which we are to understand the great cardinal gospel truth that God is light. And in each case, the apostle does an identical thing. He first sets out the error and the wrong application of that truth. Then he condemns that error. And thirdly, he corrects it. And I want you then to look at these three false attitudes to fellowship with God the errors that abounded in John's day, the errors that are still present with us in the church today. And as we look at them, I think that we will begin to see uh, some of the tests that John would indeed apply to our own lives. Each of us specific, each is different, though each is also closely related to its fellow. Now, as you notice from the sermon notes this evening, the three false attitudes or errors are what I've called, first of all, libertinism, and secondly, escapism, and thirdly, perfectionism. Now, let's look together at the first one of these, which is called libertinism, uh, in verses 6 through 7. 
Whereas you read in your Bibles with me, we see if we claim to have fellowship with him, that is, with God, this God who is altogether light, unadulterated, pure holiness and righteousness, if we claim to have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and we do not live by the truth. Now, it's very important to realize what is happening here. But in fact, what John is doing is almost certainly quoting his opponents, those that were in opposition to the message of the gospel that John was teaching to the churches in Asia Minor. And they are reflected, surely, in this very comment, just as preachers sometimes quote their opponents without actually naming them. And what John has in mind here historically, without any question, is the error of those early uh, perverse teachers called the Gnostics, who, you remember, began to abound in the, in the days in which John ministered. And basically, what they maintained was that Christians may gain such a level of the knowledge of God, a sort of super-knowledge of him, that comprised their salvation. Salvation was through their knowledge of God, given to that elect body of the Gnostics. And the very name, as I reminded you, comes from the Greek word gnosis, meaning knowledge. And the result was that because salvation came to men and women through a superior knowledge of God, bodily actions were no longer important or accountable. And what their teaching led into was a form of what I have called libertinism. In other words, to the kind of lifestyle in which there was a deliberate carelessness about sin. Now, you may say immediately that this has nothing to do with us in this generation or in the church today, but I want to ask you, does it not have something to do with us? You know, I'm struck by the truth of what John is saying to us and which I'm going to bring to you in a moment every time I drive on the streets of Jacksonville because all around you, you see the inevitable bumper stickers and some of them evidently on vehicles that belong to Christian men and women because there are verses of scripture on some of the bumper stick stickers or Christian slogans so-called. And I wonder if you've ever noticed some of those bumper stickers as you drive around because very frequently you'll see such things as God is love or honk if you love Jesus. Or things like this. But let me ask you, when did you last see a bumper sticker on the back of someone's car that said, God is light? Have you ever seen one? I don't think that I have ever seen one. And you see, the point is simply this. That the error that had come into the church in John's time is the error that if you are saved by a superior knowledge, 
then what you do in terms of your bodily actions and your daily living is no longer accountable. You have the kind of God to which the way in which you live doesn't matter anymore. And it leads into the attitude day by day among professing Christians of carelessness about sin. Now we should be reminded this evening of the challenge that the Apostle Paul gave in 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, what fellowship, he said, has light with darkness? And sin in all its forms, John is going to tell us in a moment, is fatal to fellowship with God because it leads to self-indulgence, a life that no longer is intent on pleasing God, but rather the whole focus of it is upon pleasing ourselves. And it leads into an attitude of carelessness about it. If we claim to have fellowship with God and walk in darkness, says John, we lie and do not live by God's truth. Now, we need to remember in order to understand what John is saying about the darkness that the world is a dark place. And the inhabitants of this world generally walk in darkness. They walk in the darkness of sin and ignorance and unbelief, in a state of unregeneracy, in a state of complete spiritual blindness, having understandings that are darkened without the knowledge of God, their sins and their danger, they're ignorant of Christ. They are strangers to the Spirit of God and the work of grace. They love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They will not come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. And in the New Testament we have many places where the works of darkness are exposed and brought to our attention those works that comprise adultery and fornication and uncleanness and idolatry and witchcraft and hatred and emulations or rivalry and strife and sedition and heresy and envying and murder and drunkenness and revelings and their like, says the Apostle. Now, it may seem inconceivable to you and to me that someone can profess to be a Christian on the one hand and yet walk in that kind of darkness and have the attitude to it that it doesn't really matter. And what John is telling us is a life walked in darkness can have no more communion with God, beloved, than a life spent at the bottom of a coal mine can have communion with the rays of the sun. But I have to tell you that there are those, even in the church today, who are so antinomian, who are so against the law of God, that they hold a faith which comprises the very thing that John has described to us in this text, who professing the one thing are living in the course of the other thing and are living, as he says, a lie. 
Now, beloved, what the apostle would bring to our attention is this very danger for you and for me this evening, even though we profess the orthodox faith. You know, it's so easy for us to be contaminated by the spirit of the world, isn't it? And the spirit of the world is to belittle sin and to say it doesn't really matter and to excuse it. And I wonder if you're conscious, as you must be living in this sinful society that is ours today, of the euphemisms that are in common parlance that we, for instance, so easily drift into. For instance, that adultery is no longer called by its name, but is simply called an affair today. And promiscuity is simply called being sexually active. To live in sin is simply denominated today cohabitation. Abortion is only terminating a pregnancy. And those that are for pro-death in the abortion movement are called those in favor of pro-choice. And to be drunk today is simply to have had a little too much. And you see, what I'm saying to you is that because of our society that is so adept at walking in darkness, we are in danger ourselves as Christians of imbibing some of those unscriptural attitudes toward the seriousness of sin. And how often as we as have we as Christians been guilty of speaking those white lies, as we call them, forgetting that they are indeed serious in God's sight, or saying, I shouldn't do it, but... And there is some excuse. And minimizing our course of action and trivializing the things that we have been caught into, that we know are disobedient to God, so that we are not walking in the light, but walking in that darkness that I have described, putting ourselves in the domain of the world for a season. But John gives to us the remedy for this. He not only exposes the fault, he not only condemns it, that we are living a lie, but you notice he brings to us the correction. Look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light, he says, if we walk in the light, then we will have fellowship with him and we will have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ his Son will purify us from every sin. So the way out of it is without any question that we should again come into the light and out of the darkness, that we should set aside every sin that has caught us in its coils and we should come once more into that fellowship with God, being renewed by the Spirit of God and led on to the confession of our sins. And it is interesting that when we do so, we have fellowship with one another because that fellowship with one another is dependent upon the fellowship that we have with the Lord himself. And in that fellowship, says John, we are again cleansed by Jesus' blood. 
In other words, there is a glorious provision for everything that would mar our fellowship with God. It is a continuing tense in the Greek. The blood of Jesus Christ continually cleanses us from all sin. And in that word you see is a word of hope for us. But in the blood of Jesus there is not only saving power when we first came to Christ in salvation, but there is sanctifying power as that blood continually is applied to our consciences and cleanses us from all sin. So the first error then is that of libertinism. But the second one follows it very quickly. You notice in verses 8 through 9 where the apostle says to us, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now we can describe this second way in which the reality and seriousness of sin is being denied by the error that was present in John's day. We can describe it under the term escapism. Because surely what is implied here in verses 8 and 9 is not that there were those claiming perfectionism here at this point, but rather they were refusing to accept the responsibility for their sin. And this is made clear in a number of commentators upon the book of First John, and I found in particular Robert Law very helpful at this point and the commentary of Bishop Westcott. In other words, a denial of personal guilt. Do you see what John is saying there as he describes the position that is being taken? Not that they are claiming perfectionism, but they are not personally guilty for the sin they are committing. The responsibility is not theirs. They are claiming to be without sin in the sense that though it is present, they cannot be held accountable for it. The responsibility is not theirs. And this is in line with what John tells us in other places. You may want to look at John's Gospel, chapter 15, with me for a moment. And in verse 22, John's Gospel, chapter 15, and verse 22, where the words of Jesus uh, seem to make clear what... Uh, John is conveying to us at this point. And we read there in verse 22 of John 15 that uh, Jesus said, If I had not come into the world and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. And you see the idea there is that not in the first instance that men had no sin when Jesus said they would not be guilty of sin, but the idea is that through the shining of God's word in the teaching of Jesus into their lives, they suddenly realize their accountability for it. But previously they would have denied that they were accountable for their sin. And you have a similar thought if you turn back in John's Gospel to chapter 9 and verse 41. Again, it is a very distinctive 
Johannine teaching or teaching of John. Jesus said, if, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. And it is the same kind of thought. Until Jesus came, they were obviously sinful, those unbelievers, and guilty of their sin. But the light of God's word had not exposed that sin. They thought they were not accountable for their sin. And one of the reasons why they opposed and persecuted Jesus is that suddenly the conscience was awakened and they became accountable for sin. So the problem that John is dealing with here is the problem of those who through escapism desire to be free from the responsibility of their sin. Now let me say again that this is a very current attitude in our world today and certainly among unbelievers, isn't it? In one of the expositions that I read on this passage, I came across the words of a great uh, criminologist of our own day who commented upon the attitude of society toward individual wrongdoing. And these were his words. Today, any behavior uh, that is compulsive and negative is labeled addictive. And he's thinking here of such wrongdoing as drunkenness and drug abuse. It's labeled addictive. For instance, gambling, alcohol, even food, he says, and even television. The expanding concept of addictive is what I call the new obscenity, a philosophy summarized in the four words that deny our humanity. I can't help myself. I'm not responsible. Therefore, I'm not guilty. Now isn't that an interesting comment by a leading criminologist of our age who is not a professing Christian? The tendency to put deviant behavior, wrongdoing, what the Bible calls sin, in those four words that deny our very humanity. I can't help myself. And you look around you today and the world explains its conduct by the environment around it, the external excuse, well known to all of us, the lack of education, the poverty in which I was brought up, the attitudes of racism that I imbibed with my mother's milk, the fact that I am a child who through the years that were formative suffered from an absentee father or a broken marriage because of divorce. And whatever it is, the tendency to shift blame onto something else or someone else. Or else the rationalization that is characteristic of our age. He had it coming to him, we say. Or I, I did it because it had to be done. And so on. And it all amounts to the desire to escape the sense of responsibility. And we have this even in biblical examples, don't we? As David refused to face up to his sin that was so grievous in the eyes of God and sought to put the blame on others. And sin led to sin and adultery, led to blame shifting, and finally to murder. Escapism. And you see, 
what John tells us is that if we profess to know the God who is light and have an attitude to sin like that, then the two are incompatible altogether. And the remedy for that condition, you notice, is that we should confess our sins. Verse 9, one of the central messages of the whole of the New Testament. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all our iniquity. Now, beloved, how do we escape that attitude to sin that is so current in our own day, as evidently it was in John's day, through the teachings of the Gnostics? Well, it's far more than merely admitting sin. It's far more than merely a vague feeling of regret for our sinfulness. There are tears of grace that are to be shed, not merely tears of nature. Do you know the difference between the two? Do you know that inward working of God's Spirit, by which alone tears of grace copiously flow down the sinner's cheeks? And they're not tears of nature that are merely tears of remorse and regret that you've been found out, or your actions suddenly that you thought would be so sweet has become costly to you. But they are tears that acknowledge not a lapse, nor a few too many, but acknowledge that you have sinned in the sight of a God whose character and very essence is pure, unadulterated light. And you see the sin of gossip as something that is devastating to the lives of others. You see, when you have been unjustly angry, for all the heinous sin that that is. You see your hatred of a brother in the Lord as that which divides the fellowship and your heart is broken because of it. You see a breach of the fourth commandment, a failure to keep the Lord's day in that sweet communion with God as deserving his just displeasure and that you have sinned and all sin is a violation of the very character of God, and you accept responsibility, and you confess your sins. Beloved, do you know that? I am the one. I made that choice. I am guilty because of it. I am held accountable before a holy God. I was not coerced or forced into this, but I chose it voluntarily and in the full light and knowledge of what its consequences were. And I deserve the displeasure of God. Now that, beloved, is the characteristic of the child of God as he walks in light. And oh, the blessedness of the promise as God comes to us. And as he says in his word, if we confess our sins in that way, God is faithful to all the promises of Scripture to meet us with forgiveness. He is just in his character, having punished those sins already in the person of Christ so that forgiveness is legally and lawfully possible. What a wonder that word just is, isn't it? 
You'd expect to read, God says, because he is kind or because he is loving or because he is merciful, but no, because he is just. All our sins and iniquities can be forgiven and cleansed away. Now, there is the second error, escapism. And the third one, and quickly on this, is perfectionism in verse 10. If we claim we have not sinned, John says, we lie and uh, we make God into a liar and his word has no place in our lives. Well, what John is clearly dealing with here is that third error, which is perfectionism. Those who were in the church professing to be Christians, claiming to walk in the knowledge of God, and yet denying the presence of sin in their lives. This time it is perfectionism, that there is nothing sinful about me at all. And the seriousness of this, as John says, is that it makes God into a liar. And of course it arises, this idea of sinlessness, because of a stifled conscience and because of ignorance of God's word. A stifled conscience because there is no man living who is not conscious of sin if he is awakened by God's word to that knowledge. There is no one who can claim to be a Christian and claim at the same time that he has no acquaintance with sin. And indeed, the experience of God's people, as you well know, is that the more they grow in godliness and the more they grow in grace, the more conscious of sin they become. And the only account, therefore, of such a claim of perfectionism is that this conscience has been stifled and the word of God has been ignored. You remember that even the Lord's Prayer in its teaching teaches us to ask daily for the forgiveness of sins. Forgive us our sins as we forgive the sins of others. And it's as though the Christian has two great daily needs for daily bread and for daily forgiveness as the very staple diet of the Christian life. Now then, as I close this evening and draw these separate strands together, whether it is libertinism or whether it is escapism or whether it is perfectionism, there is a refusal to face the reality of sin in the Christian life. And what we need, beloved, is the counsel of the Apostle John concerning these things. And the reminder that the only safe path is to walk in the knowledge of God's word and in the knowledge of the daily confession and the forgiveness of our sins. Would you be free of sin's tyranny? Would you seek a life of holiness and purity? then you are bound by the bands of the gospel to recognize that as God is light, we are bound over to walk in the light of fellowship with him. And, oh, beloved, in doing so, we will experience that beauty of the cleansing blood of Christ, the peculiar sensitivity when sin draws near, 
and the looking for a continual flow of cleansing through his redeeming blood. May God give us grace this evening to realize these warning posts of the apostle erect around that great gospel truth that God is light and avoid the errors of libertinism and of escapism and of perfectionism, but rather acknowledge that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all iniquity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these truths this evening, and we pray indeed that they may be applied to our minds and consciences, that we may walk in gospel obedience before that God who is light and in whose character there is no darkness at all. For Jesus' sake, amen.